0: Welcome back, my friends, to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My interview on this episode of A.A. Recovery Interviews is with Corby M., whose experience in A.A. started in 2017, only to be sidetracked by a relapse in 2020. Fortunately, he survived that slip and was able to claim a new sobriety date two years ago. Corby's relapse story is one that's grown more common these days, as the prescribed use of opioids for legitimate pain turns into misuse and then addiction. In Corby's case, intense back pain and the ensuing abuse of painkillers led him back to alcohol, despite all he had been doing in AA. By the time he made it back to the fellowship after inpatient treatment, he had been whipsawed by the veracity of the disease. Clawing his way back into the middle of the program, he redoubled his commitment to stay sober and established new lines of accountability to both his sponsor and those he was closest to in AA. With a renewed spirit of service to AA, he became more active than ever in his club and offered both newcomers and those who'd relapsed his hard-won experience and growing wisdom. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to see Corby in a few meetings each week and observe firsthand the very real change that has come to him as the result of earnestly working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. His involvement in the fellowship extends well beyond the conclusion of each meeting, I often see him sticking around to chat with newcomers and old-timers alike with his affable manner that everyone loves. Corby's story will resonate with anyone who has turned to alcohol for respite from doubt, uncertainty, and fear. That he survived his disease's attempt to permanently take him out of pain and misery is strong evidence for the efficacy of the AA program. That he now lives each day to stay sober and help others demonstrates the transformation that can occur as the result of doing the hard work the program requires. I believe you'll find Corby's story to be both engaging and informative. His is a message that we alcoholics need to hear over and over again. So settle in for the next 65 minutes of this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Corby M. My name is Corby,
1: and I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Corby. I'm so glad you, you could be on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with I'm, me today. <laughs> I'm happy to be here, Howard. <laughs> yeah, what was great was I just had the opportunity to hear you share in the meeting, in the um, in the step study meeting that we have in the next room over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was on the eighth step today. Yeah. And you had a lot of really interesting things to say about that. You're sober for how long? Two years. Two years? Yeah. What's your sobriety date? It's actually 9-8-20. It'll be on the 8th. It'll be two years. It seems like more time has passed, less than two years.
1: Well, yeah. So, you know, I saw my original sobriety date was in November
0: of 2017. Okay, that's right. You have been here for about six years, yep, right? Yeah, that's right. So what was going on in November of 2017 that brought you into AA? You know, I'd been at this, pl- at this point in my life where I was just managing,
1: you know, drinking. I would say sort of recreationally, you know, but, mm-hmm. but I definitely had my times where, you know, I had, had way too much and, you know, had a hard time getting home. And mm-hmm. you know, I was a blackout drunk. And had tried to sort of quit, you know, numerous times in the, in the previous, you know, in the preceding, you know, I would say like 10 years, I'd had a bunch of t- times where I would stop mm-hmm. and with no recovery, you know, just, I would just stop, you know, and I would just say, Hey, I, whenever I drink, you know, usually good things don't happen. So I'm going to try to not drink, you know? And, and so I would go for periods of, you know, a month or three months or you know, I think the longest I went was six months, maybe, and then I would try to do what the book says. You know, I would try to just drink beer, or mm-hmm. you know, just drink on the weekends, or just drink when I was out, or just drink at home. Or I mean, I tried. You know, I tried them all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and then I, I began to have times where, you know, when I started, when I was drinking towards the towards the end, and and mm-hmm. that year of 2017 and in, in November. You know, the incidences of me, you know, drinking too much and then either passing out or, you know, offending somebody, you know, in a, in a, in a gross way um, hmm. were increasing. You know, just like the, the book says, I would, I would wake up and, and I'd feel remorse and, and I would vow to never do that again. And then a few weeks would go by and somehow, you know, I would do it again. And so I started, every time that happened, I just kind of felt so much, I just felt so much shame and guilt about it, you know. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stop, you know, I really, I'm not sure that I ever believed that alcohol was my, my problem.
0: So you were able to put together the connection with what your behavior turned into when you were drinking and the consequences of that behavior. You were able to create some kind of causality there, so you knew what was causing a was causing B to happen, but yet what was missing from that equation?
1: You know, I think I would just say, uh, you know, awareness, because as we say a lot in the, in, in the rooms, life began to happen and, and it wasn't going my way. You know, um, stresses were, were happening mm-hmm. and I was finding myself drinking, you know, sort of trying to control my drinking just sort of at times throughout the evenings you know, and I was just hiding, I was hiding, you know emotionally mm-hmm. and mentally hiding, and I would look in the mirror and just be like man i don't I don't like what I see and and I would go take a drink, whatever I was feeling inside, I wanted to not feel it.
0: was that a pattern that had gotten started earlier in your life
1: yeah, it really it really was when did you have your first drink? you know, I went to a Catholic grade school and I remember. Somehow, you know, when we would have P.E., we would have access to Mm -hmm. um, the church. Yeah. And, you know, they serve wine at at a a Catholic church, Catholic mass. And I stole a bottle of wine
0: from church. When you were just a kid, huh?
1: Yeah, I was like in seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. It was a big old, like, you know, they it was a jug. I mean, it was, I don't know how many liters, it was a lot of wine. And so I stole it and then put it in my bag somehow got it home without my parents you know having any idea and invited two of my friends over and you know they came over and we you know drank it and it was interesting because I was the only one that like didn't pass out and get sick um, which again I don't I don't know that that's just if that's just luck or you know
0: whatever but so you got drunk from it yeah do you remember hilarious behavior or any
1: yeah I remember running around just kind of crazy, you know acting foolish. I remember feeling like I like this mm-hmm. I like the way this feels and I felt this this sense of um coolness you know n- not not in the Hollywood sense but in the in the true sense and I felt this coolness in my body when i when I drank and I really enjoyed it
0: was that feeling something that you had been seeking earlier before you had that episode with the wine going back into let's say your your family of origin and your childhood what was going on in that environment that may have made you seek out this sense of cool coolness you know my I come I come from a you know a stable
1: home you know my parents have been married for 50 years and I can't really think of anything specific. I, th- I was diagnosed with having some learning disabilities when I was younger. And uh, I just remember always feeling unable, you know, to do certain things in school. And I always just sort of felt like I was at a deficit, you know, w- when I was in school. And, you know, I certainly had behavior problems associated with that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had a hard time sitting still in class, you know, I got got kicked out of class a lot. Yeah, you know, I just remember uh, feeling like, you know, in in that respect, I just didn't fit in. My friends studied, you know, and did well in school, and I just sort of showed up, and, you know, I I, I remember at times showing up and going, oh, is there a test today? You know, like, because I (laughs) I just had no... Awareness of it, and I think my my parents just thought, well, he's just he's just not a good student, and or he has you know whatever learning disabilities. I don't. I know that I got tested, and 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 I know I had ADD, but I'm not sure if there were other things associated with
0: that. But and how did your parents react to that? Did they just let let you be with it, or did they seek out help with that? What was their response? I remember
1: going to you know various facilities I guess if you will to get to get tested and I don't ever remember there being like a here's what's going on diagnosis you know so I just kind of always felt like there's something wrong with me
0: When did you first start feeling that way Probably from you know like middle school What was home life like is there alcoholism or within your family Yeah I mean certainly not not in my
1: immediate family my parents drink and they and they definitely drank when I was growing up but but never to excess, mm-hmm. um, we had alcohol around in my house. Um, you know, there's certainly mental illness uh, in my extended family. Something I've ex- I've experienced, you know, uh, personally. So you know, it's interesting as I as I look back now. I, I wonder if if you know depression wasn't a significant part of what I was you know experiencing you know as a middle schooler, you know, and high schooler. I would just get really attached to people, you know, sp- specifically girls, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, I really just I fell in love with this concept. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you like see in movies, you know, I, I romanticized my life, you know. And if I if there was ever a breakup or anything, I mean, like I remember being, you know, 16, 17 years old and getting a bottle of tequila and, and locking my door in my house, you know, as a, as a 17 year old and, and, and drinking tequila by myself, you know, for the sole purposes of drowning out the pain that I was feeling. And I put myself in a lot of those situations with girls and and just with relationships, you know, where I was so attached,
0: so dependent, um, or codependent, as they call it these days, right? For sure, yeah.
1: I just remember drinking so that the pain would go away and I could, you know, stop feeling it.
0: So you started drinking, let's say, when you were about with the wine and everything else. Did you continue drinking after that? Yeah. So you started drinking at what, 13, 14 years old, mm-hmm. which is very common amongst almost all my guests that I've interviewed, is 14 seems to be the. Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen seems to be the magic the magic numbers in there. Um, but were you aware when you were going into these relationships, whether it was just dating or whatever it was, romanticizing that if it didn't work out, you could always drink?
1: Yeah, it's almost almost as if I looked forward to it in in some way, like you it know?
0: not working out. Yeah,
1: like I, I <laughs> knew there was going to be you know some big fallout at least you know from my my standpoint. Yeah, and um, that I was going to get to, you know, lick my wounds, you know, as they say. And
0: Mm -hmm. that's interesting. You mentioned it in in a way that made me think of the, the kind of the dramatic element in there. And, you know, the movies and in TV shows where the guy loses the girl and then you see him at a bar or you see him in his room or whatever else, obliterating whatever the feelings are. Sure. That was something I identified with really early on,
1: you know, and I, and I remember just going, you know, that's what I'm attracted to. That that image, which huh. really that image was a reflection of what I wanted to experience. Yeah, you know, because I was never really a good time Charlie. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I, I drank, you know, and I had a lot of good guy friends, and I was in a fraternity. And, mm-hmm. You know, so I did all of the traditional hell raising and mm-hmm. beer, beer drinking. You know, as they say, and But in terms of how I saw myself, I I really identified with that image of the guy you're talking about, you know, sitting on a bar stool with a bottle of, you know, Jack Daniels and, you know, you know, gone dead to the world.
0: Yeah. You know, beautiful loser that, you know, the the guy who you don't so much as feel sorry for him as feel envious. It's a very immature view. Mm -hmm. Um, as as I understand it you know
1: now you know and I I can look back now and go something happened to me in my youth where I stopped developing emotionally
0: yeah yeah that's usually the case we we hit some point at which all growth beyond that point stops of course the the teenage mind the brain doesn't fully develop until somewhere in the 20s so if you're Doing that to your body and brain at fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old, it's easy to see where that behavior kind of becomes locked in when you're when you're doing it. You mentioned the girls and and you so you were dating a lot in high school I wouldn't say it would it was the high frequency, but
1: I had significant relationships okay. where, you know and and you know and they were you know corny and this the kind of stuff that like like I said like you see in the movies where it was like, I thought I was going to be with them forever kind of thing.
0: Yeah. You know? Um, how did alcohol and drugs, uh, d- were you doing drugs as well or just alcohol? I was doing drugs, you know, off and on, you know. So how did alcohol of, play into those relationships? So was it a part of them or was it excluded from them? How, how did that work out?
1: It's Yeah, it's interesting. It was excluded um, as it relates to um, what, what I would call the, you know, the severe image of my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely drank, and drinking was part of my relationships, And but I didn't drink alcoholically in the relationship.
0: Did the girls, Did they? were they sharing in that with you?
1: Yeah, I don't particularly, I don't remember, you know, anything in particular um, related to that. Um,
0: the reason I ask is because when I was in high school, my junior and senior year, I had a steady girlfriend for about two years, and we were really in love i mean it was it was big, but she just didn't like guys who drank at all, mm. and so whatever it was I was going to be doing with drinking was completely suspended for the length of our relationship oh, Wow, which was very interesting, yeah, I used to kind of play that against what my friends were doing, you know they had all these unstable relationships, and they were but they seemed to be having a wilder time than I was having. Mm. So whenever it was that we went to college at the same college together, the relationship fell apart because all of the opportunities that college created for me to go wild and be able to date and that sort of thing, it, it, we broke up right after we went started going to college together as a result of that. Oh, wow. but, but she was the predominant reason why I didn't drink during my junior and senior years in high school.
1: Mm.
0: Now, you were drinking, you were hanging with the crowd. Yeah, I mean, the same guys that I was still in line with in 7th and 8th
1: grade, I went to high school with and and I remember stealing alcohol from liquor stores and mm. you know, I I remember getting arrested in 8th grade. Yeah, I mean, we just sort of didn't have any regard for really much of anything, you know. And it's like I I can look back on my life and almost without exception say from high school through college and through my adult life, the situations where that they, where they've end in a, in a in a bad way, negative way, whether it's, you know, wetting the bed or, you know, um, getting arrested, you know, it was always because I was drinking or using. None of the bad things ever happened when I was so cold sober like I am sitting here with you, you know, I, I don't remember having... Nights where I went out and drank, and I just was like, Man, that was so much fun tonight! You know, I'm really glad I did that.
0: Huh, it just generally didn't end well. So, there was a point at which during the evening that you felt okay, and then it went downhill. Yeah, I couldn't stop. Did you ever have an idea where that point was and try to stop at that point? Sure,
1: oh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's sort of a passing thought,
0: you mm-hmm. know, and as you and I
1: both know, as I know now, you know, your judgments. And your ability to make good judgments, you know, is diminished once you start drinking and, and drugging. And so it's a really tough ask to be able to manage, to figure out
0: where's that number of drinks. is too much. Yeah. We try to get to that point, and we always overshoot it. And by that point, what happened, used to happen for me was I'd overshoot it, and I'd think, ah, oh, what the hell. You know, I'm already, things are already, I'm already beyond that point, so I might as well drink anyhow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, with the guys you were hanging with, what kind of crowd was that?
1: We were, well, we were all mostly jocks, you know, we all played football and mm-hmm. so we, you know, we mostly just played sports and, you know, hung out with girls and
0: the popular guys at school.
1: I would say, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't remember there being a, you know, that that being a big factor, but you know, I did excel To the degree that I excelled in anything as a kid, I I did excel in athletics, you know, certainly relative to, you know, my school activities.
0: Did that kind of make up for the deficits in the academics? Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely felt like
1: I had a place, you know, in the world, you know, as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a place in the hierarchy of the environment. High school, I don't think was anything, you know, there was anything significant but i definitely drank alcoholically you know i got arrested a few times um i cheated in school you know i mean mm-hmm. you know, i didn't i didn't take it seriously there was nothing serious about my about my life other than maybe you know football i took i took
0: seriously mhm so you were hanging with this crowd during during high school you got through high school what was next well then i went to college you know sort of limped
1: my way through the first couple of years Mm-hmm. You know, didn't didn't do particularly well. I, I'm not. Re- I don't remember what happened, but at some point, I decided to take some ownership of my mental health, you know, the learning aspects of you know who I was. Hmm. And so I, I went to see a doctor, and I was diagnosed with you know having ADD. You know, and and at that point, you know, subsequently began taking medication, mm-hmm. and and it ended up you know my last two years of, of college doing really well. Which was just amazing, you know to me that it was something that that, that 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 would help you know that much. I took medication you know for that. And that was the main treatment.
0: So you know, a number of people I've interviewed Adderall and whatever else they were giving for ADD mm-hmm. at the time. Did some miraculous things for them in terms of academics or just their social relationships or whatever. But on top of that, they continued to drink and do what they were doing with marijuana or other drugs. Were you continuing to drink while you were also taking the medications?
1: Yeah, I mean, I never, I never looked at it as an impediment to anything I was doing on that front. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was smoking or you know, certainly drinking. All those things I looked at as being separate compartments.
0: Yeah. You know? Compartmentalization is an important thing to be able to do if you're going (laughs) to live with all the conflicts going on, isn't it?
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's a a great skill. It's a requirement if if you're going to live the way I lived for most of my life.
0: Now, during this time in college was this also a time at which you had relationships with with the girls yeah it's interesting
1: it's when i met my my wife and in in my relationship with her she was taking life seriously i mean she was very social and she was in a sorority and you know she went to class and you know she studied for her exams and uh and had plans for a future you know and sort of i think i sort of looked at her and thought well number one i'm i'm you know, madly in love with this person, and and I think I want to spend the rest of my life with her. That was something I identified really, you know, as probably I was 19 or 20 years old probably.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And I thought, well, I I better get it together to the degree that, you know, I want to stay with her, you know. and I mean, it was nothing. that I, I never felt like she was, like, forcing my hand. I think I was able to just sort of see her... As an example, and I, and I think I looked around and saw, you know, I better, I need to start taking life seriously, you know, because um, it is it is something to be taken seriously. You so, know? what
0: did that look like? Well, it looked
1: like you know, spending more time away from the fraternity. You know, I spent a lot of time with her, and then it looked like me taking some initiative to go to the doctor. I think I'd been kind of saying, well. My parents did some research around this, and they really couldn't figure anything out. So, you know, it is what it is. You know, I really don't remember what specifically happened, but I I do. Something happened to make me go, you know what, I'm going to go see if I can uncover what's going on. You know, now that I'm older and I can hear it for myself.
0: So in a lot Um, of ways, her presence in your life helped you straighten out. To the extent that you were able to go and get help for the ADD,
1: yeah, it really
0: did. Yeah, that's great. That it really that's did. that's a real gift in and of itself. Isn't yeah, it? for sure. Yeah. So, did you start dating her exclusively at that point, or?
1: Yeah, I started. We started dating exclusively at that point. Yeah. So,
0: like, from then to now. From then to now, yeah. Wow, that's so cool.
1: Yeah, it's been almost thirty years.
0: Wow. Yeah, and I want to ask about those thirty years as we move on from college. Did you have a plan for moving forward? Did you know what it was you wanted to do when you get out? I
1: basically thought I was going to go be a salesman, and that's sort of all I I sort of had pigeonholed myself to thinking this is really all I can do. I think I can do this. I can talk to people. Yeah, and I'm halfway intelligent. I can I can do this, you know. And so I always just assumed that's what I was going to do, Hmm. you know, and. I graduated from college and and began that's what I started that's what I did I was a salesman and that's that's what I do today i was i'm I'm still a salesman
0: what were your what were your early years in sales like Because sales is in a profession that is absolutely rife with alcoholism. I do remember in college psychology was my major, and I
1: remember thinking this is going to help me learn to read people and and I do remember you know, feeling able when I graduated, I do remember feeling able because of that, you know, because I I felt like I, I knew how to talk to people and I knew how to to read people. And I feel like that's the that's one of the a strength that I have today that I, I feel like, you know, and for the most part served me well. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I mean uh drinking, you know, we drank, you know, every night, you know, when we worked And every day we went to the bar pretty much, you know, Mm -hmm. for a happy hour. You know, there was always something. And I remember going to meet clients for drinks. And, you know, it was always sort of always part of it.
0: Yeah. When you gave thought to stopping drinking later on, whenever it was, did you consider how important the drinking was to the profession? Did that enter into your decisions at all?
1: No, it, it didn't. unfortunately, because... I had been doing it long enough that I had, you know, I had enough of a foothold on the business that I didn't, I could afford to not go to happy hours or not, you know, have cocktails or dinner with clients, you know.
0: Do you think he would have been successful stopping drinking earlier in that environment? It would have been really hard knowing
1: now that I have, you know, because I I know now that I had undiagnosed depression for many of those years as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, it was a struggle. How long after uh, school did you guys get married, and what were your what were the early years of the marriage like for you while you were, I'm assuming, still drinking? Yeah, at sure. That time
1: we got together, got married. You know, within four or five years of me graduating, mm-hmm. maybe less than that, three years probably, and you know, we started having a family. You know, pretty pretty early. The first years of our our marriage was really just focused on raising our kids. We have, have four kids. They're within, you know, 15 months of each other, you know, all four of them. So it was just like one, two, three, four. And so the early part of our marriage really was all about, about that.
0: How did alcohol enter into that or, or were you drinking as much or not as much? Did you have a, an intent to not drink because of that? What was it? What was the feeling there? Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I really it was something I didn't. I didn't think about it. As you know, as we know, alcoholism is progressive, and at the time, you know, it was just in its normal progression. So, you know, I was drinking, you know, socially, and my wife and I would go out, and we'd go to a ball game, or you know, we would uh, go to dinner, and you know, I, I could have a few drinks. And, you know, the behavior associated with the drinking wasn't severe at that point.
0: So looking back at those years in your marriage and in the raising of your family and in the formative years and the early growth years of your career, is it safe to say it was truly social drinking or was that still looming in the background, the alcoholism?
1: The alcoholism, as, as we know, it was always there. There was always a feeling, there was always something inside of me that I was trying to fill up with something, whether it was work or, you know, accolades or achievements or money or, you know, my children's
0: achievements, mm-hmm.
1: or, you know, sort of, I just sort of always had this image of myself that I had to be a certain way in life.
0: Were you accomplishing that? You know,
1: the short answer is I, I didn't see any, any of that happening. You know, you could, you could argue that, yes, there definitely had success in my life, you know, yeah. I, I, without a without question. I had success in my life in the traditional sense. You know, my kids were all, you know, did well in school and, you know, are were, were just good, solid people. And, mm-hmm. um, but deep down, you know, I always had this feeling of, um, you know, something's off.
0: Yeah. Well, the depression, I know in my case, the depression will do that to me. That no matter how good things were going, they never felt like they were going good or at times at which I thought you know, all this great stuff is going on and I still feel like blah, you know. Mm-hmm. As a, as a, it's a weird f- way to feel. I always wondered what's wrong with me that I can't feel more elation at the success in my life. Why does it feel like something's missing? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, for sure, and it definitely has been my, my experience. It? You know, being a 12-step program has really helped my depression as well. You know, I, I have traditional treatment for that as you know, but you know, understanding you know, the, the spiritual aspect of the program. You know, I would just say when I came into the program in twenty seventeen, the the images and the view I had of the world, myself and then my myself in relation to the world and then how I viewed myself mm-hmm. just directly was very sick, which I believe is where the alcoholism you know, kind of has always been.
0: So there's this period of time between having the four kids drinking, let's say responsibly or functionally, growing your career, that sort of thing. At what point did things start to go downhill be, as a result of the alcohol?
1: So it was, you know, specifically, you know, around around 20, I'd say 2015 to 2017 is when these incidences of Drinking in excess started happening more often. Hmm. Life became unmanageable. In what ways? Well, I wasn't able to live as an adult. I I couldn't face life. I couldn't handle life.
0: What did that look like in terms of your job and your relationship with your family?
1: Yeah, I mean, it looked like not following through on my commitments. Mm -hmm. You know, it looked like lying. Hmm. It looked like, you know cheating and mm-hmm. stealing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it just looked like like I said I think when I said when we started it looked like I just was hiding out you know not facing reality
0: Was that called to your attention by anybody around you the people you worked with your spouse your your family your parents
1: I mean yeah definitely you know it was, it was something that I was in therapy about and mm-hmm. you know my wife and I had been in, in couples therapy some about it and it was sort of like I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what's wrong. I don't understand what's wrong.
0: You couldn't see the linkage between the alcohol and what was wrong?
1: At some point at this at this particular time I still was thinking I don't know why I keep drinking like that. Mhm. And because I'm I'm you know when I'm not like that, I'll go through life and I do the best I can but I'm not happy with myself or with life. And I don't and I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. Um I hear people say this a lot and it's a you know it's an old saying I guess if you will that alcohol was my solution to dealing with life and the feelings that I had associated with with life. You know these incidences of you know drinking too much and you know whether it was you know I'd wake up in the and you know be I'd be passed out on the back porch or mm-hmm. passed out in my car or passed out downstairs or you know I would do something where i didn't remember what happened i'd wake up and kind of go what happened last night
0: so you were getting to be a blackout drinker mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah for sure
1: mm. I, I couldn't stop i didn't know how to stop once i started you know I, I couldn't stop
0: we'll be right back my friends if you've enjoyed my aa recovery interview series and my big book podcast Check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. You mentioned 2015, which is a couple of years before you first came in, but it sounds like there were quite a few years in there where you must have been a functional alcoholic.
1: Yeah, I I just sort of white-knuckled it. Did you? Yeah. I mean, I, there was nothing, I don't remember anything specifically. I think I just kept saying, I'm going to take a break from alcohol for a period. And, you know, then that's trying to go to a Bible study or try to start going to church mm-hmm. or, you know, and those things, like we say as well, like those things worked, you know, in, until they didn't work. And so the feeling of uselessness and self-pity kept growing inside of me. Even though I was doing, you know, these things to make the pain go away. Mm -hmm. And really the pain was this image I have of myself is unrealistic. You know, this concept of humility was not one that I I understood, you know, at all. And um, I remember leading into that last sort of what caused me to come into the program. Mm -hmm. And I'd been exposed to it a little bit. I'd been to a few meetings in my life. But I remember going to meetings and some of the same meetings that I, you know, where I see yeah, you now, sure. and going, these guys are all here because they're trying to learn how to control their drinking. You know, I, I just didn't understand the concept of the 12 steps or recovery, um, sobriety. You know, I just didn't understand. At least what I understand, you know, today. How long
0: did you hold to that erroneous belief when you were first going into AA in 2017?
1: Gosh, well, I didn't have it in 2017. Um, but before that, I'd been to some meetings. Okay, so you that's know? when you're thinking about it. Yeah, and that's when I was thinking about, like, these guys are, I just remember thinking, I'm glad I'm not them. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I'm not, that I'm not as bad off as a lot of these guys are. So, so I, I think back, and I, and I can say I had a spiritual experience sometime in 2017.
0: What did that look like? Well, it looked like my,
1: I was going to watch my son play football, and and I ended up drinking at my office and by myself. Ended up going home and picking up my other kids and picking up two of their friends, and I'd been drinking, you know. Not all day, but enough, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that I was certainly intoxicated. And anyway, I drove them to this game, basically blacked out. And I dropped them off and then I went home and I just left them there with my wife and my family were there. And I just left them and went home and Hmm. sort of just kind of just disappeared. I didn't even, I didn't tell them anything. I just, they got out of the car and I just drove off and ended up, I was at home. You know, and the next day, I was going on a trip with my one of my sons the next day, and I remember mm-hmm. feeling, I woke up feeling just so much shame because I missed my son's game, and mm-hmm. my family was, you know, scared to death of had, what had happened to me that night. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the feeling of, you know, complete and utter, utter demoralization, mm-hmm. you know. I was totally hopeless. Mm. I ended up going out of town with my son that day to go and we went with some some other people and I remember I didn't drink that day, you know, and I and I got there we were we were going out of town out into the country and I just remember mm-hmm. at one point I snuck, I kind of snuck off and went by myself and I went to, you know I was out in this in this field And I remember being in my car, and I had a a pistol in my car. Mm. And I remember just thinking, I can't do this. Can't
0: do what? The living
1: or the dying? I can't do, I can't, I can't live anymore like this, Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just remember feeling um, total hopelessness. Mm. And I had a bottle of alcohol in the car that I hadn't touched yet. You know, it was about... 24 hours, maybe not even that long since my last drink. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I woke up that morning, you know, before um, this being in the field situation, and I woke up that morning thinking, okay, I know that I'm drinking because I'm hurting. Right. So I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to drink anymore. Yeah. And I got to figure out what else, what's going on with me, why to figure out why I'm hurting so bad.
0: Mm.
1: You know, I would identified at that point enough to know I was I was mature enough to understand that I was distracting myself by working or yeah. exercising or mm-hmm. you know drinking mm-hmm. to fill some hole that I had inside. You know, mm. so I, I knew that. So I just kind of said, "All right, I'm not going to drink." So I'm in this I'm in this field, and I think you know i'm I'm gonna end it i'm I can't do this anymore i'm I'm done hmm. and I picked up the pistol and I put it in my mouth and I got a call from another friend of mine who's who's not in the program but he's in a, he's in another twelve step program and you know he he'd known he knew about what happened because mm-hmm. he was you know he's close to what's close to my family or is close to my family mm-hmm. and um and I answered the phone and I didn't tell him what I was doing, but, you know, I remember I was crying. I just remember him saying, Corby, I know this hurts and I know you don't believe me, but you're going to be okay. Hmm. And you just got to get through the day. You just got to get through the day.
0: So this call comes in while you have the, the barrel of the revolver in your mouth. Yeah. What made you answer it?
1: Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I've come to appreciate about the program, you know, Mm -hmm. that God shows up for me through other people. Mm. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I believe that was, that was God showing up for me in that moment. Um, and I think I, I knew that he would understand, you know, when, when, when my phone rang, I think I knew there was a part of me that wanted to keep going, you yeah. know? So, you know, I kind of just white knuckled it through the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I came home, you know, my, my, my kids were still pretty young but they, they knew something was going on for sure, you know, but. And you know, my wife was obviously very hurt and and scared and
0: sad and had you said anything to her about the episode in the car with the gun? No. No, okay. No. You know, that was something that I still kept very secret. I get it, yeah. You know, I didn't yeah. I didn't want anyone to know about that. Uh-huh. Um
1: okay. and I just thought you know, I just kept I just remember thinking, you know, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? You know. Uh-huh. So I came I came home that the next I mean a couple of days later and I didn't drink at all and I just sort of tried to grind through the weekend as best I could. Yeah. You know, and and then I went to an AA meeting when I got back. And then, for some reason, I reached out to someone who's who's in the program that you know that you and I, you and I both know yeah, and he was a a client and um I, I didn't have any real reason to reach out to him. I knew he was in the program, but I reached out to him and i i think I just left him a very sort of you know generic message mm. and um and he called me back then like the same day and I could tell when he started talking to me that he knew what was going on. Yeah, you know, and I don't know how he knew. You know, he didn't have any reason to know. I knew that he knew. He wasn't calling me because he he was going to talk about some business yeah. element. I mean, he he knew it was a it was a personal call.
0: So you didn't leave in the message that you left for him to call back. You didn't say anything except give me a call back. Yeah. Wow. That's the guy that ended up being my sponsor. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, um, and so I just
1: sort of I got in the program. I started working the program pretty mm-hmm. much from day one. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. And thinking, okay, I I don't know if this is the right place for me. I don't know if I have alcoholism or not. Yeah. But I know I can't drink or drug, and so I'm gonna stick with this program and, mm-hmm. and try it out. He had me read. Some of the the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. and, and he said, "I want you to go through." And, and there was an exercise that he wanted me to do, and I just remember reading it the first time and thinking, "Man, this is me. This is I'm I'm reading a book about myself."
0: Isn't that amazing,
1: yeah. And I remember telling him that, and he and he goes, "Yeah, you know why? You know why you feel that?" And I, and I said, "No." He goes, "Because you're an alcoholic." <laughs> and I remember, I remember. Kind of laughing, but...
0: Was that a revelation to you when, when, when you realized that? I mean, or had you already been thinking that that was you anyway? I,
1: I really hadn't, you know, to be... I knew that I, I drank, you know, what I would call alcoholically, and I knew I was a problem drinker, but I remember when he said that, and I had this sort of a spiritual experience in that moment. Yeah. That, yeah. wow, this is a solution. Wow. This is a solution. You
0: know? How long after you coming into this to this second revelation or this moment of clarity? I mean, to me, it seems like the, the the first God moment was in the car with that gun yeah. and the call comes in. Yeah. this sounds like the follow up. Yeah, yeah, it's so
1: true, you know, and it, and it it made me.
0: Was that immediate? I mean, was that very early, the first few days that you were there? Or? It was.
1: It was probably within the first thirty days of of my sobriety. Yeah. And I just remember when I w- once I identified that I remember thinking, man, I'm on fire for this AA stuff now. And I, I remember going to meetings and I wanted to go and I found a you know home group and and started meeting people and yeah, I just I remember thinking you know and the you know the Big Book talks about us you know being on a great liner, uh-huh. and I remember thinking when i when i walked into an aa room some at some point in my first i don't know maybe it was you know 90 days but in the first period i will remember i remember walking in and thinking i've been saved from the hopeless state of mind and body
0: so this is within the few first few months you're feeling that way yeah Wow, that's cool. Yeah, it
1: was it was it was really cool.
0: I got to be in some of those meetings with you. Yeah, in fact, you did. I think I, I remember some of the very first meetings you went to at that club, and you could definitely see a man who there was a certain tentative nature uh, about you, but you also seemed determined. So yeah, you know it's always tough to tell by just looking at a guy coming in a few times whether he really has it or not. The thing I do remember you doing though was you stuck around after the meetings. Yeah, do you remember doing that? Sure. And
1: it was really just sort of leaning into the program. My sponsor had a pretty big event in his life, and I remember you know, trying to be there for him as best I could. And, yeah. and, I, and I would have never done that before I came into the program.
0: It was amazing to watch you do that, by the way. I got a chance to witness a man being of extraordinary service to another AA early in his program this absolutely cataclysmic event goes on with this man who we know and you were there you were you were like there every step of the way for him and it was a beautiful thing to watch as tough as it was for you to do i'm sure seeing you and getting to witness you doing that was really big for me and other people in that room it almost was like you were a natural or something
1: well right? i don't yeah, i don't know about all that i i just i feel Like I I say, I say this a lot in meetings, you know, that I feel like God shows up for me through people. I didn't consciously, because back then I didn't think of it that way. When I was there for him, I just was thinking, this just feels like what's right. I don't, and it's, it's amazing that I look at that time now and I think that time really prepared me for my life. Showing up in a stressful situation like that, sad, to kind of devastating situation for someone else, you know, allowed me to show up for people in my life and to not make it about me.
0: That's a great evolution for an alcoholic to get to the point of it being all about me to not being about me. That's a big, big step to take. So this happens in 2017, 2018. Take us up to the point of your slip. Yeah, so... Things
1: were going well. My life was good. My, you know, my relationships were on the mend at home. I was just engrossed in the program. You know, um went to seven or eight meetings a week. You know, definitely worked the steps and you know I was I was in the deal. You know, I was doing the deal for sure, but I've had back problems for a long time and I've had two surgeries on my back when I was younger, both or injuries from playing sports. And so this pain came back over the last, you know, three to four years, and it became clear that I was going to have to have my back fused. I guess it was 2019. Mm -hmm. And I had the surgery, and the pain was bad. You know, the pain wasn't getting any better. And at some point, you know, I started taking – Medicaid. I was going to a doctor and I was being treated and, uh, you know, he gave me pain medication. I don't think it's a unique story. As I look back now, you know, he gave me the medication. I took it as prescribed. At some point, I began prescribing them myself. And then I had the surgery thinking, okay, once the surgery happens, I'm going to be pain free. Because it was. I was having a hard time sleeping and it was really affecting my life.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: And um, I had the surgery. The pain didn't go away, so I kind of kept taking this medication. I think the unique thing is, I never stopped going to meetings during this time period. I was still involved in the you know my club and and still chairing meetings and leading meetings and, you know, I was thinking in my head, well, I'm not taking this medication to get loaded because because that was the truth, you know, I, I had significant pain. Um, and that's why I was taking the medication. My brain tricked me and, you know, I told myself what I needed to hear to allow myself to say, I'm in the program. What do you mean? I'm, I'm sober. You know, Mm. I'm, I'm, it didn't even occur to me. You know, I never one time had a moment of going, well, is this, is this really a good idea? Hmm. Yeah. I just thought I'm in this pain and I did make a decision at some point where I just said, I can't live in pain like this anymore. It was not a good situation. So I just kind of said, I'm going to take the meds until the the pain gets better. I was doing rehab. So I was doing Uh all the things, PT and such that they were telling me to do. It just wasn't getting better. And so what happened was, you know, thank God, as I've come to find out, it becomes harder to get medication the more you take.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because
1: at, f- at some point the doctors go, I'm not giving you any more meds, you know.
0: Yeah, they're gone too they're quick. Too yeah. quick,
1: yeah. Like, I somehow didn't have the idea to go, well, I'm just going to go get them on the street. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. That never occurred to me, thank God. So I just said, okay, I'm I'm going to say that this is a sign that i got to stop. And I stopped taking the meds, you know, kind of cold turkey. And then that very next night, you know, I was in so much pain that I drank mm. physical pain, and I I had access to alcohol in my house, mm-hmm. um, and I drank, and I drank for three straight days not not literally, but I drank for, th- for three consecutive days to the point of passing out. And on the fifth day, I went to treatment. Mm. Yeah, I, I thank God. You know, my my wife. It was a a very tumultuous end again you know oh. i ended up you know breaking things and passing out in the bed and, and hurting myself and
0: and how long have you been sober by this point three about three years about three years yeah. okay yeah so i mean it was
1: instantaneous in terms of how much i i took of alcohol i woke up one day that sort of that last day after a horrible night my wife was like okay what's going on she didn't say it quite quite that calmly but she just said what's going on. And I told her the truth. I said, I drank. Hmm. And she, you know, somehow said, look, you know, I'm not telling you, you have to go to treatment, but I'm, I'm telling you, you have to go
0: to treatment. Yeah, I get that.
1: Because I don't think, you know, she said, I don't think you can do this on your own. Mm -hmm. She was right. I still didn't realize at that time, I've come to to understand now, because I've studied it, this, this concept of hyperalgesia, which is I thought it was just, you know, you know I didn't think it was a real thing. Uh-huh. And, I, and, I, and, and it's intuitive, but, you know, it, effectively it's the, the, more, the more you take pain meds, the worse your pain is going to be. And I never, so at some place when I was taking medication, I crossed over this threshold
0: mm. where- It stopped relieving the pain and started causing the pain. Yeah. And I, if I needed to, to
1: get me to the same place, comfort level before, now I need, five and it ramps up very quickly. It it goes from two to 12, like almost
0: overnight. Had you talked to your sponsor or anybody else about this as it was going on with the meds?
1: No, I did. I did talk to a few people in the program and it was, but I wasn't honest with them that I was self prescribing. You know, they would say, you know, take, you know, it would say, it would say, take, you know, two every three hours. Yeah, and I would take three every two hours.
0: Yeah, that's classic.
1: Yeah, classic. And then I would say I'm just going to store them up and take them all at once at night, so I can go to bed, so I can sleep. Yeah, I mean, I was sick, and one thing I learned, I read this in the book a million times, mm-hmm. but you know, the big book talks about insanity returns, and man, I didn't understand what that meant. Yeah. Until this happened in my life, and I start going, "Wow, the insanity's returned."
0: So, were you out of meds when you took that first drink after? Okay, so you're out of meds. You had no relief. No relief, yeah. I'm just. So, alcohol looks like the perfect solution. Yeah. So, once she said what she said to you, were you ready to go to treatment?
1: I had so much fear, first of all. Mm -hmm. And I felt so much shame, you know, from, you know, ruining my sobriety, if you will, and that I I just said, I'm going to go.
0: How long were you in treatment?
1: I think I was there for like 25 days. Okay.
0: And did you do the aftercare and the IOP afterwards? Oh,
1: yeah. It's almost like I never left. I went to treatment mainly because I, I needed to find a way to get off the pain meds. And really that what that looked like is just being locked in a room and not being able to drink or drug.
0: So you had a detox while you were there?
1: Yeah. It was rough. I didn't have any of the traditional physical symptoms. I was already having the pain,
0: and they weren't giving you anything for that, were they?
1: Nope. They they gave me Advil or, you know, Toradol or something. Oh my gosh. I, I went, you know, kind of headlong back into the program, and mm-hmm. and it's been that way, you know, ever since. And I'm, I'm
0: so the amount of time between when you went into treatment, which effectively was your last, the last time you drank mm-hmm. or used that you abused medication, let's say. Cause Correct. You, you've had medication since then. I've not. You've not. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the end of the drug use, the end of the alcohol happens. How long between that day and, and your new sobriety date?
1: That's, that's my new sobriety date.
0: So you yeah. were actually only out there for
1: five days? Yes, yeah, something like that. But, you know, I can make the argument that when I was self-prescribing all those meds, you know, I was yeah, out yeah, there.
0: yeah, yeah. I get know? that.
1: I get that. But that's the truth. My mind, you know, wants to say, well, you were only out for five days. But the truth is... From a program perspective, the second I started self-prescribing or, or the second that I became aware that I was self-prescribing and then didn't make a correction, yeah, you know, that's when you, for me, that's how I would say that I so, went out.
0: So you were doing that for how long? Probably about
1: sixty days.
0: Sixty days, my guess. Maybe yeah. maybe thirty. So really, let's say your your real slip was about sixty from the time that you started using irresponsibly, and then you drank, and then you stopped. About sixty days. In Probably day. yes,
1: yeah, something like that.
0: So you know the thing that strikes me about that, and I saw you a lot during that time, was that you were still doing things around the club. You were, you were like you said you were still participating. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about compartmentalization. Is that what you were doing when you were in those meetings and you were that you knew that you were abusing the meds or did you not just not see it that way? I didn't see it that way. Right. Okay. I saw it as I need these meds to survive. Right, right. Okay. I can't function in life without sleep and this is how I'm doing it. Right. So no reason to come clean because you self-justified it. I self-justified it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. You but know? the drinking, the 5 days of drinking was a real stark realization well, wasn't real it? Real stark, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's almost like it took the drinking to end the drug addiction.
1: Yeah. And, and, I, and I remember being in treatment and thinking, thank God that this happened to me. Thank God that that last doctor said, no more meds. That's incredible. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's amazing.
0: The addiction takes you to the alcoholism, which then addresses both. Yeah. What a great realization. In what ways has your experience with the with sobriety to begin with followed by the slip followed by the new period of sobriety? In what ways have you been able to share that with others? and 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 how have you noticed that impact on them?
1: You know, I, I hear anecdotally, you know, mm-hmm. um, from people. Um, I know that the story that I have is not that unique. Mm-hmm. It, it may be in this in the sense of how things happen, some nuances, but in general. You know, I remember hearing people in meetings that went out all the time because they had a surgery or something. You know, it's a very common thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I remember hearing and sitting in meetings and hearing that and going, that sounds crazy that that could happen to somebody.
0: And this is before it happened to you. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking, how could you not know you're taking meds, you know, alcoholically? How can you not know that?
0: So in a, in a real sense the You already knew what you ended up denying, and then justifying the actual use.
1: Yeah, because I I wasn't taking it to get loaded. I was taking it right to alleviate the pain that I had. Yeah, I get it. You know, I think what we talk, what I talk about a lot, or what I what I think about is just living life on life's terms. Mm. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say this, and you know, if you stick around here long enough, life happens to you, yeah, good and bad,
0: yeah, and
1: being able to stay sober through those times is the example that I try to set as it relates to meds now you asked me if I had meds I haven't had any pain meds since then and our friend uh Dan D I've I've heard him say this about his own situation that he's lost the privileges of eating candy
0: yeah yeah and and
1: sort of that's so that's how I think about it is yeah. I've lost that privilege I haven't had to go in face that again I'm just focused on today, Yeah. Uh, you know, but that's how I think about pain meds now is that I've lost the right to have pain meds in the true, you know, sense of true opiates and,
0: you know, narcotics. Right. You know, I'm
1: not saying I don't take Advil or that I wouldn't take aspirin or something of that nature because I definitely would, but...
0: Well, you know, it occurs to me too that one of the things that can get us started down that road, like the one you, you went down with the meds, is that... Not only do the meds change the way we feel, but when we realize that we have to take more because we're not getting better, that disappointment of it not working, you're dealing with not only the pain, but also the disappointment of having the pain. Mm-hmm. For sure. Like, I had the surgery. I should be feeling better. I'm not. Yes. So I'm taking the meds. I'm also really pissed off that I'm not feeling better.
1: No, no doubt about it, oh. yeah. It's a terrible cycle and. Uh, was one that I just wasn't aware of. You know, I I was aware in the sense that I can understand someone having a surgery, then taking a a Vicodin or going, wow, I like the way that made me feel. I'm going to take another one. I understand that conceptually Mm -hmm. easily. What I didn't understand was this idea that, you know, this effect of needing to take more to make the same amount of pain go away because the same amount of pain needs more medicine, you know, the more that you use the medicine. Yeah, it's
0: like what you mentioned earlier about it causing its own pain. It's very troubling, you know, to
1: think about. And certainly as an addict, you know, I have no business being anywhere near that.
0: And what great experience that you have now to share with others, because you and I know, especially in that meeting that we go to all the time, that there are people coming in who we can see in legitimate pain. They're limping yeah. in. They're in wheelchairs coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell just by the way that they're moving that they're in some pain. I can imagine you have lots of opportunities to share what you went through with some of those. Definitely. Folks. Yeah, I look
1: and I, and I continue to look forward to those times.
0: And that's such a gift. That. I mean, you know, you, you, yeah. you probably may not see it yourself, but I see it. Every time I see you talking to one of those people, I'm thinking, man, what a gift that guy is for that person. Yeah. And I've also realized that you are available to be a sponsor and that you've had some experience in doing that. Yeah. And that's a gift.
1: It is a huge
0: gift, yeah. So tell me about a couple of gifts that have occurred.
1: I think the biggest gift, the thing that I've, I've realized, before I got sober in 17, I thought, I used to sit at a bar or I would just sit with a drink in my hand and think, If God really wants me to stop drinking, he'll strike this drink from my hand, (laughs) you know? And I think much like having the gift of desperation that I I got just by grace, Mm -hmm. I also have this gift of understanding that that's not how God works. That's not how my God works. Mm -hmm. The miracle happens when God makes me aware of a problem. He's done his part at that point. And And I think understanding that concept that, God doesn't make things happen in my life. Things just happen, and I have a responsibility to respond to them. And how I respond to them is up to me. And, and I think just this, from a spiritual aspect, knowing you know, I used to think, "Poor me, poor me." Right. Where's God? And now, because I've I've been around to see things that I see, God shows up through people. Yeah. You know, I hear God. When I go to meetings or when I sit with another alcoholic, mm-hmm. you know, and I hear stories and I see, witness things, you know, mm-hmm. that is how my God shows up. But the truth is, I haven't seen a lot of abracadabra activity. Right. You know? right. I, now, I can look back and say, wow, what in the experiences of my life and some things that have happened to me where I can say, that's God. Yeah. And I do acknowledge that.
0: Yeah.
1: But my perspective is what shifted. That's the gift I think I'm most grateful for right now.
0: And that's the kind of gift that can work in so many areas of your life, which is, to me, God expressing himself, giving us the key, and then it's up to us to open the door or not. That's right. And that freedom of God's will, it's still God's will for us to have the freedom of self-will, mm-hmm. but you've been given the key, you've opened the doors, you know what's behind them. And that, to me, sounds like an incredible gift in your life. and. What a blessing for your family to have a sober man at the head of it.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: At the end of the day, I think this has just been a beautiful experience for you, huh? Yeah, it's,
1: it's just tremendous. You know, I'm able to love my children for who they truly are. Yeah. And I say it in meetings a lot. You know, they don't owe me anything. Yeah. I used to think, you owe me this because I've done this and I've yeah, done yeah. that. And I, I don't think like that anymore.
0: That's an incredible transformation for a parent to have. It has been great. And that's a God deal too. Totally God. Right there. No doubt. Well, so we've been talking about God. We've been talking about you. Yeah, This man. has been a wonderful, wonderful interview. I just really appreciate the fact that that you were willing to sit here today with me and share so much of your life. I feel like I know you so much better now. And I love you and you're a good man. I respect and admire your journey. And I'm glad I'm able to be there to watch and yeah. to be there with you, and to be a resource for you. So Yeah, I love you too, Howard. I appreciate that. I want lot. to thank you a lot for doing this.
1: You're very welcome, man. I'm glad to, glad to do it.
0: Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Corby M., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more people. Of course, you can listen to more than 85 interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.